I'd like your help with my introduction. We're going to recite a poem responsively. I'll recite the first three lines, and then you will respond out loud with the fourth, and then we'll alternate line and line. Now, you're looking around, but it's not written down anywhere. Trust me, you know it. It's going to be just fine. So here we go. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose, and if you ever saw it, all of the other reindeer, they never let poor Rudolph. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, Then how the reindeer loved him. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. I told you it would be okay. Now how many of you, I want to see your hands, how many of you immediately heard echoes of the gospel in Rudolph's story? I don't see any hands. Well, I think there's a good reason for that. One of the reasons is that uh, Western culture is, isn't, isn't dominated by shame and honor as other world cultures, most world cultures are. Western Christians, like us, most of us, tend to think of the good news in terms of that story of our loss of innocence through the guilt of sin. And our sin then being forgiven in Christ. And that is indeed the good news. And we respond to it because we have internalized law. And we feel guilty when we violate it. Guilt and innocence are central to our social dynamic. It's the way that we influence behavior. It's the way that we understand whether a person is good or bad. And so we long for our record to be wiped clean. But most world cultures are dominated by a dynamic of shame and honor. We have a friend named Lenka, who is a doctor in Slovakia, and she tells us that when a Roma, a gypsy woman, comes to her for an appointment, a, a gypsy woman, a Roma, will rarely come alone. And the size of her entourage indicates her status in her society, in her culture. And if she does come alone, it probably means that she is unable to conceive. And because she's infertile, she's shamed. Uh, she is defective. She is an outcast in the community. Now, most of us think that's, that's kind of weird. That's not the way that we operate. And yet the Bible was written to a culture... And the gospel addresses a culture much more like hers than like ours. And when we understand this, that we find out that the good news is actually much bigger than we even thought it was. Now, Rudolph's story, that's why I started with Rudolph's story, because it shows us a side of the good news that we often overlook. It helps us uh, to to understand something about those shame and honor cultures. 
where people don't just feel that they've made a mistake, but that they are a mistake. When they're shamed, they are acutely aware that they are deeply flawed, and the community confirms that by pushing them away. Therefore, they feel unlovable. They feel cut off not only from others, but from God, and they long for their shame to be covered so that they can know true community with others and with God. They hunger for honor. Now I want you to think about Rudolph for a minute. He starts out pretty well. He's the son of Donner, the chief reindeer. Uh, The community admires and adores this child of the prince, and the big man has some pretty high hopes for him. But, and this is through no sin of Rudolph's, he loses his status in the community. His deformity is exposed, and so he is shamed. He is defamed with names. He is excluded from participation in the society. Like a leper or someone with an unclean spirit, he becomes an outcast. And so Rudolph flees in exile and he takes up with a band of misfit toys. But his story, like the gospel, is about something called status reversal. The great Santa, he's the one with the most prestige in the community, lifts Rudolph's head. He gives him a position among the princes of the people, a position of honor on his reindeer team. And the people, the outcast now sits at the head of the people and the community welcomes and adores and sings his praises and he receives a name that will endure forever. Rudolph's story, in his story, we see some of the basic elements of a shame and honor society. There's a court of reputation and there's a code of honor. The society, and particularly its leaders, will serve as that court of reputation. And they assign status to people according to that code. And the code defines how honor can be both ascribed and achieved. Ascribed honor is not something that you actually earn. It it just is bestowed upon you, and it comes from your family, or your inherited title, your social class, your physical perfections, like the beautiful people, or your defects, like a very shiny nose, or infertility. Achieved status comes from something that you accomplish. It might be your education, it might be through competition, warfare, wisdom, or a heroic ordeal. Now, once you lose honor, in a shame and honor culture, your status can only be reversed by a prestige person. Somebody with great honor in the community has to restore you and reverse your status. And when Santa places Rudolph at the head of his team, then, and only then, the community honors him. Now, some of you might be from shame and honor cultures like Latin America, Asia, those of you who haven't Uh, A heritage from the Old South probably knows something about shame and honor. You have a code. And even among young adults in the U.S., shame, shame and honor, are playing an increasingly important role or place in our society. We have cool shaming, and we have body shaming, we have internet shaming. 
and we know instinctively where those ports of reputation are in our society. They're on social media, they're in the mass media, as well as within our closer circles of our family and our church. Now, when news media, for example, uh, it serves as a court of honor or court of reputation by defining what are honorable and shameful opinions about issues. If, for example, you are opposed to abortion, that means, according to the court of reputation, that you hate women, and that's shameful. And so you can see that even the way that we think is shaped in a, in a shame and honor culture by these courts of reputation. So the ideas, the opinions, the, the commitments that fit that code of honor bring acceptance. They bring praise. And those that don't are going to bring labeling. They're going to bring exclusion and even exile. North Carolina passed a law that doesn't fit in the code, and so they will not get to play in any of the NCAA reindeer games. Texas will probably join them on the island of Misfit States pretty soon. Now, now we know about shame and honor in the U.S. because shame isn't just a cultural problem. We inherited it from our parents, Adam and Eve. You know the story in the garden, uh, and you know that shame is an, that's why shame and honor have to be an essential aspect of the gospel. And if we don't understand how the gospel deals with honor and shame, then we are going to deal with honor and shame by default in the way that our society does. And that's usually a bad thing. We were created in the beginning with the highest honor possible for any creature. God the Creator made us in His image. And in order to display His glory, His honor to all creatures. But Adam and Eve didn't honor God. They rejected his code and they tried to make themselves his equal by establishing a false code. And that brought shame on them for their disloyalty. And they felt that deeply and they tried to, they did what every shamed person does. They tried to cover their shame with their fig leaves. And as happens in shame and honor cultures, they were exiled from communion with God. Now the rest of the Bible and the rest of human history chronicle how we try to recover honor and community by creating, uh, apart from God, by creating our own false courts of reputation, our own false codes of honor. And more, more importantly, the rest of the Bible tells us how God covers his people's shame and exalts and honors his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And he welcomes them back to his table, to his family. And it's the only way to truly satisfy our hunger for honor. Peter is writing to a people who, because they follow Jesus, are being shamed by their world's court of reputation. When Peter begins his letter, you'll see in the very first verse, he greets these people, these believers, with a very ambiguous title. He calls them elect exiles. And to be elect, to be the chosen ones, that's a title of great honor. 
It's, it suggests prestige. But to be in exile is to be disgraced. So which is it? Are they honored or are they shamed? Well, Peter is framing the tension that we, as Christians, live in, as people who are honored by God and shamed by the world around us. And throughout his letter, Peter refers to the ways that his readers are being shamed by the world. In chapter 2, verse 12 and 3, 16, he says they're being slandered. In chapter 2, 23 and 3, 9, they're being reviled. In 4, 4 and 14, they're being maligned and humiliated or insulted. And in every chapter, he mentions at least once how they are being persecuted for following Jesus. They're being discredited by their society as social and moral deviants who are a threat to the good of the, of, of the people, to the common good. And those uh, around them are pressuring them to conform to their values and their standards of conduct. Now, the society does this not just to destroy believers, but actually to reintegrate them. They offer them a way to save face and to be restored to community. All you have to do is deny Jesus and his way, and we will welcome you back. Now, more and more, we face a similar pressure, even in our own culture, even probably less dramatically. So, for us, it is important to pay attention to Peter's counteroffensive. It's something that we need to understand how to deal with, with the pressures that we face. And as we look closely, we'll see how the, how the gospel transforms us, the people of God, into a subculture or really a counterculture of honor in a world of shame. Peter counters his, uh, his culture's barrage of shame with his own barrage of honor. And our text includes the climax of it. Look at verses 4 through 10. He speaks of Christ, who was rejected by men, but to the Father, chosen a chosen and precious cornerstone. And then he says that we are honored like the Son. We, too, are precious stones to God. And we precious stones then are being built into a living temple, a a home for God, where the most prestigious being will dwell in intimate communion with us. And that's honor. We are a holy priesthood. We're set apart for God to serve in his house, bearing his prestigious name. And that's honor. In verse 6, he assures us that because we believe in Jesus, God's precious stone, that we will never be put to shame by God. And in verses 9 and 10, we are a chosen race, a nation, a people for God. Shame and honor cultures are collectivistic. Shame and honor are contagious, and they spread through the community. And that's why those who are shameful must be exiled. They must be cut off from the community to remove the stain. And because of this, because of Jesus, we are restored. That's the status reversal that I'm talking about. The Father reverses our status. We are a people. We're God's precious people. So once Peter has then firmly established this this foundation of honor from God through Jesus Christ, then he addresses how we're to live 
in a world that shames us. So he gives us a new coat of honor. And I want you to note that pattern. It isn't live an honorable life so that God will honor you. It is God has honored you, therefore honor him with your lives. That's the gospel pattern. Peter begins with a summary of of our new code in verses 11 and 12. Let's start in verse 12. He says, to keep your conduct honorable. You might have another translation that says something like, live good lives or excellent lives or beautiful lives. But in this context, honorable captures what, what Peter is talking about. Remember that for something to be honorable, it has to fit the code of honor and the court of reputation has to declare it. So, well, Peter identifies the court of reputation right here, the ultimate court of reputation. Uh, look at verses 6 and 7. It says that God honors those who trust in Jesus, his precious cornerstone. And the ones with real shame are those who reject him. And since God is the ultimate court of reputation, then for us to live honorable lives means to live according to his code, God's code of honor. And that's going to clash with our culture's code of honor. Now, in the rest of the letter, which we're not going to cover all of it, uh, Peter describes this code of honor. And it turns out, in summary, the way that we honor God is by honoring his image, by honoring people. Peter gives examples, and most of them come from authority relationships because authority relationships are hot spots for shame and honor. Most of these relationships come, uh, or, or Peter addresses authority relationships in government, in work, in family, and in church. And, and you're, this is your homework. Explore all this in detail later. You know, go home, eat your lunch, and then read the rest of 1 Peter. But notice how often Peter talks about honor. I'll just give a, a flyby. In, later in chapter 2, starting in verse 13, he says to honor the authority of the government. He says to love the family of believers and honor the emperor. And then he says, honor everyone. And that might sound okay to you, but in, in a culture like theirs, with, that was so stratified socially, with a, such a great hierarchy, that was revolutionary. In, starting in verse 18, he tells servants to honor the authority of their masters, even if their masters are wicked and unjust and treat them badly. In chapter 3, he addresses honor in marriage. He tells wives to honor the authority of their husbands, even if their husbands are not believers. And he tells husbands to honor their wives and to find ways to, to honor and care for them. That sounds probably normal to us, but in their culture, that was, again, revolutionary. In chapter 4, he talks about how we are to honor each other in the church by covering over each other's shame. In chapter 5, he tells elders not to demean and shame others in the church by lording their authority over them. And he tells the young to honor the authority of the elders. And he tells us all to honor each other no matter what your social standing is in the society. So a biblical church, a gospel church, then is going to be its own culture that is flowing with honor. It's where people who are buried by shame can find refuge, where people who are hungry for honor can be filled. 
But how exactly do we honor spouses and bosses and elders and sinners and believers and the outcasts of society? Well, probably not by escorting each other to our medical appointments. We have to find ways that in our culture we show honor to others and in our culture, cultural expressions that are shaped by the Bible. Obviously, we will honor people with words, words of admiration, invitation, gratitude, forgiveness, inclusion, encouragement. We'll also honor people by not just talking, but by listening to them. People want to be heard. We'll honor people in our culture by giving them our time. Our time is so precious to us. And when you give your time to someone and devote, you set aside your other business for them, that honors them. Not checking your phone while you're talking to them face to face. We also avoid shaming people by not calling them out on Facebook or targeting them with our tweets. But we learn best how to honor people from Jesus himself, of course. He was the ultimate alien and exile, and he got himself crucified for doing the very things that Peter tells us to do. The rulers of the people, the court of reputation in his day, hated him because he cared for the outcasts. He touched the unclean, he fed the poor mobs, he healed the crippled and the blind, he befriended, hated tax collectors, he let a woman of shame touch his feet with her hair, and he welcomed all such people to his table. He ate with them. And so honor takes more than words, it takes more than time. We bestow honor with physical care, with touching, looking people in the eyes and sharing meals with them. And this isn't just for individuals living out in the world in your work or, or on the internet or in the park or at school. It is for the church in the world. It is for us together to be this counterculture of honor in a world of shame. I don't know if I said this very well, but I hope that that sounds beautiful to you, that you would like to live in the counterculture of honor. But if we live that way, and especially if we honor people who are shamed, it will not be easy. We will risk finding ourselves on the outside, just as Jesus did, just as Peter's elect exiles did. And if you know Peter's story, you realize that he knows from experience that it isn't easy to live in a way that risks shame in the world. He denied Jesus, rather than be identified with the one who was shameful in the eyes of the world. And so he understands the pressures on us, and in light of that, he offers help for us in three ways, at least three ways, and I'll close with these. In verse 12, he tells us um, that there is great power in living according to God's code, instead of some other false code of honor. He says that if you live honoring people this way, that people will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now Jesus, as we said, was rejected. He was murdered for living this way. And yet you know that many people were attracted to him as well. They were drawn to him precisely because he lifted up those who were bowed down. And in the same way, your life 
is much more powerful than any sermon. People don't want to be preached to, but they need hope. They need to know that there is a way that their shame can be covered and that they can be welcomed and that they can be known and still be loved and they can be known by God and loved by Him. And your life will enable them to see that. They need to know that they can be honored by their Maker. That's what they were made for. That's what they yearn for. And your honoring life, a life of honoring others, will preach more to them than any sermon. Another way that Peter strengthens us to live this shame-risking way is in verse 11. He reminds us of the source of our hunger to accept a false code of honor. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. And the word that is translated in my translation, passions of the flesh, um, is, it's, a, it's a word that the New Testament writers use to describe, uh, we could say, over-desires. Uh, desires for something could be a very good thing, but your desire is either misplaced or it's out of proportion. It's twisted in some way. Uh, so you can think of it as a desire to seek from something created what you should seek from your creator. It might be love. It might be comfort, acceptance, control, significance, honor, any human need, any longing. God is the only true satisfier of our longings. And so when we put something else above him and seek for those things in created things rather than God alone, we have, we've gotten things out of order. We have the passions of the flesh. Now, all kinds of over-desires can throw you off course, but I think in 1 Peter, the biggest over-desire that, <clears throat> that, that comes to mind is that desire for honor from the court, from the world's court of respectability, to get their approval, their honor, rather than God's approval and honor. And we need to flee that desire. If you've taken on the values and the perspectives of the world around you, and that is their code rather than God's, then you're likely under the control of this over-desire. If the way that you honor outcasts never provokes any kind of response from the world around you the way Jesus' life did, then you should ask yourself, has my hunger for honor from people taken over and swallowed up or come between me and my love for God and His honor? And last, and if we're enslaved by the desires for the honor of the world, then the only thing that will set us free is, of course, Jesus, but specifically his suffering and death. This is how the gospel covers our shame. Peter's letter is full of references to Christ's sufferings, to his wounds, to his rejection by men, and to his death. They are our motivation. They're the motivating engine that drives us to live like exiles in this world. Look at, uh, well, if you have your Bible, look at verse 21 of chapter 2, 1 Peter. For this, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we live against the grain of the world 
so that people accuse us of being evildoers or being foolish. It should remind us of what Jesus went through for us. And although we tend to think of his physical sufferings on the cross, the Bible doesn't really focus on that at all. What is more striking is his humiliation. The Romans chose crucifixion for their enemies and for, for disloyal citizens precisely because of the shame that it heaped on the offender. More than nails and the whip, it was the stripping naked, the ripping out of the beard, striking the face, spitting in the face, mocking, <clears throat> jeering. The offender was publicly defiled. Uh, he was treated like dung and cast out. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, as we read earlier in the service, says that Jesus despised the shame, the shame of the cross, not the pain of the cross, the shame of the cross. He wasn't afraid of the shame that it was going to bring on him because he was looking forward to that joy and the glory that would come to him as a result of that, which, as Woody said, is us and communion with us. So he was able to become, even though he was perfectly honorable himself, he became the sink where all of our shame and dishonor was poured on him. He was humiliated before men so that we could be honored before God. And all who believe in him are truly honored and will never be put to shame. And if you meditate on his love each day, on the shame that he went through, it will help you to, to work against the world and to live according to God's code of honor. Now, some of you today, I'm sure, are hiding from God because you feel ashamed. You feel that you have betrayed him. You feel uh, that he could never accept you. You have defended your own honor, perhaps, rather than, than seeking his and defending his. So you feel that you cannot approach him. But we have this promise here from God. It says, this honor from God is for you who believe. And those who believe in Jesus will never be put to shame. And I know that sounds hard to believe for people who are buried by shame. But because of his love, Jesus took his, your shame on himself. He took my shame on himself so that we could be exalted with him. Honor him. He will lift you up and he will welcome you at his table. Amen.